This podcast is a ritual is supported by listeners like you. Well, listeners like you, if you're already a member of our Patreon. If you're not, you can become a slightly better listener by visiting patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual, where for just $4.20, you can help keep our magic alive and get access to monthly bonus content, virtual gatherings, esoteric playlists, and more. That's patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual. In 30 seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you've left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is a ritual. These days, if you're into magic, you've heard of chaos magic. And if you've heard of chaos magic, you probably know exactly where and when you were when that wild ideology first entered your world. For me, it was August 2004, just a couple weeks after I'd left my parents' home and moved to Olympia, Washington. I was reading an interview with Grant Morrison in the late, great countercultural magazine, Arthur, and my mind was being blown to pieces. Grant described a psychological approach to magic, a freewheeling, playful approach where you could worship comic book characters in place of deities and still get results. I was determined to learn more, to try it out, to experience it for myself. Reading a biography of Alistair Crowley and theoretical books about chaos magic whet my appetite, but it didn't satiate my hunger. I wanted someone to spell it out for me, give me simple, practical rituals to try myself, to make sense of sigils, and just tell me what to do. Enter Phil Hine. Cracking open his book, Condensed Chaos, I found precisely what I've been looking for. Here was a text that explained the most far-out concepts in magic in a way that was accessible, engaging, and often downright funny. It made magic feel like something that anyone could approach if they had an open attitude of curiosity and experimentation. While planning a recent trip to England, I asked my dear friend, Dr. Al Cummins, who would be a good magical person to podcast with while abroad. He said he'd be happy to put me in touch with Phil Hine. Preparing for our interview, I devoured Phil's latest work, Hine's Varieties, Chaos and Beyond, a collection of essays, new and old, chronicling Phil's experiences and evolving perspectives as he moved through the worlds of paganism, Wicca, chaos magic, Tantra, and more. Magic exists in strange loops. Reading Phil's reflections on his earlier experiences in magic reminded me of my own first forays, a lot of which centered around reading Phil. And here I was, many years later, now a wizard in my own right, taking a train to talk to the person whose words first helped me find my footing on this path. Strolling through the gardens outside the Horniman Museum in London to find a secluded grove where we could chat, I felt that strange overlay between my past selves reading Phil's book and my current self pulling out podcast gear to record a conversation with Phil himself. So it is with considerable pride 
and much personal delight, I now present to you this very special conversation with the man, the myth maker, the legendary chaos condenser, Mr. Phil Hine. Hello, Phil. Hello, Devin. Welcome to our ritual space. Thank you very much. Now, we're in a pretty interesting space, and this is one of those podcasts where I'm not at home sitting in front of a computer. We're out in this lovely garden. Can you tell the audience a little bit more about where we are right now? This is the uh, nature trail of the Horniman Gardens in Forest Hill. Uh, it's reclaimed land. It used to be part of a railway network. and uh, Now it's been turned into quite nice uh, space. It's a beautiful space. We're sitting on these uh, these old rail logs, and there's a log pile sort of fermenting by us. And we're probably going to get a fun medley of background noises, the occasional passing car and singing bird. Yeah, the occasional aircraft. And um, we might have to uh, move if a large party of school children turn up, but we'll see. I think if a large party of school children show up, their minders will probably keep them away from the, the two men sitting and talking with microphones to each other. <laughs> well, let's wait and see, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's our magic word going to be? Om Ganapati Nama. Okay, you're going to have to say that one again for me. Om Ganapati Nama. Yeah. Om Ganapati Nama. Yeah. Okay. On the count of three, one, two, three. Om, Om Ganapati, Ganapati Nama. Nama. Now tell me a little bit about that word. Uh, that's uh, part of a mantra to Ganesha, mm -hmm. um, the elephant-headed uh, Indian god. Who have been I, I've been a devotee of Ganesha for about fifty years now. Yeah, um, he's associated with beginnings, uh, openings, mm -hmm. new ventures. Um, he's kind of like a celestial doorkeeper. Yeah. I am. Uh, I, I love that you brought up Ganesh because it's also one of my uh, favorite favorite deities that I find myself encountering and working with quite often. Mm -hmm. And as the Lord of Obstacles, I love both. The, you know, the classic. Please get the crap out of my path so that I might walk forward. But I also find myself really enjoying the way that he will put obstacles to force you to take a detour and find perhaps a different route. Sometimes. Yeah, um, and, that's an interesting thing about Ganesha. He both creates and yeah. clears obstacles depending on on the situation. And uh, through, and the, he's, he's often invoked to uh, to begin any kind of enterprise, whether it be a magical exercise mm -hmm. uh, or, or the beginning of a business enterprise. I've, I've I've used it for both. He's he's helped me land jobs before. It's been wonderful. But it's, it's, it's great that you bring them up because this morning there was a very confusing situation. I was stopping for breakfast with plenty of time to spare, and then the breakfast just kept not coming. And finally I realized I was missing my train, mm. and finally I was like, I have to leave. Like, it's been way too long. And then suddenly the restaurant was like, oh, my God, we're so sorry. We're going to go talk to the kitchen. Okay, it's been a mistake. The breakfast is totally free. It's on us, and they rushed it out. So I missed the train, which means that we're recording half an hour later. And so we're therefore in a different conversation than if that obstacle hadn't been in the path. But which, you got a free breakfast, though. And I got a free breakfast. Which is cool. <laughs> which is cool. Mm -hmm. So uh, welcome to the uh, obstacle version of, of this episode. Uh, now, you are someone who I'm very excited to speak with because you are an author whose work has very much influenced my own and was one of the first things that I read as I was discovering magic that really gave me... Um, fingertips on the ledge of how to actually sit down and start doing these things. And I 
I've just read your latest book, an anthology, Heinz Varieties, and I love the way that you sort of tell your own story. But um, if you could just give a quick uh, synopsis version of what brought you into magic and took you from where you were then to where you are now. Okay, well, this this is in Heinz Varieties, so uh, forgive me for repeating it, but yeah. uh, I thought magic was rubbish. But around about the age of 16, 17, um, I was studying psychology, and I just thought, oh, magic is just, you know, primitive psychology. And I was sitting in the school library one afternoon, idly reading um, a part work that was very popular in the 70s called Man, Myth and Magic. Mm -hmm. And I freely admit I was not looking for information about magic. I was looking for naked pictures of witches, (laughs) which is, I think, entirely appropriate as a 70-year-old boy. And I came across a picture by Austin Osman Spare, the occult artist. And I think at the time I was really into young and there was something about that picture which resonated with the Jungian material I'd been reading. And I kind of thought, oh, well, yeah, maybe there's something in this stuff after all, you know. Um, so I went to my local library and read everything that was in the library, uh, which wasn't a great range. It was mostly um, theosophical writings, Dennis Wheatley, some spiritualist mm-hmm. material. Um and that kind of got me interested. And from there, I started, you know, doing meditation. I was already I did already doing meditation because I was I was doing yoga um, for entirely different reasons. And I started trying out various magical exercises and spells and that sort of thing. But um, I really didn't start making any headway until I moved away from home and went to do a degree course in psychology, sociology, social policy and philosophy. Mm -hmm. And it was there on the degree course that I met other people who went to magic uh, and started experimenting and everything just really bobbled along from there. Yeah. Now, you talk in uh, in the book about some of the intersection between other currents that were happening um, in the U.S. UK at that time, and and punk as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm very curious about how those two groups overlapped, because you talk about, I think when you first got to, I'm, I forget if it's Leeds or somewhere, but like a Chumbawamba and Conflict show ended in a riot. And, yeah, yeah. And I was like, that is just painting a picture of a very interesting time in my head. Yeah. Well, 1980s Britain was really a um, very interesting period in the country's history. Uh, we had a we had an extremely repressive conservative government in power. Um, Glad that's over and done with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, we had uh, mass unemployment. I was unemployed at the time. Mm-hmm. And when I first moved to Leeds, most of the people I knew were kind of like unemployed uh, punks and squatters. Mm-hmm. And there was a magical scene in Leeds, but most of the people involved with it, I would have to say, were not unemployed punks and squatters, mm. although there was, there was some kind of degree of overlap. Yeah. Um, Leeds at that time was very much Chaos Magic Central. It right. was one of the big centres of Chaos Magic. A lot of the uh, early stage practitioners had ended up there. Um, and the, so there was quite a vibrant magical scene based around the university. The mm-hmm. university had um, like a, an occult society where they used to 
bring lecture, do lectures and hang out and get pissed in the student union bar. Yeah. Um, so it was a very vibrant scene. And it was in Leeds that I really um, hooked up with other chaos magicians. Uh, I'd already sort of started to get into chaos magic by then, but I, it was very much kind of like a Wiccan version of chaos magic, mm -hmm. sort of devotion to the goddess Eris, mostly. Um, there were chaos magicians, there were... There was a small um, group of tantric practitioners, which I got involved with. And there was the Esoteric Order of Dagon, which were kind of like um, post-Thelemic Cthulhu fanciers. Yeah. Um, so there was all kinds of things going on, and I kind of happily threw myself into this mix. Um, I also met this guy called Rodney Orpheus, who's a rock mu musician, some of you may be familiar with. And with him, I started up a, a pagan magazine called mm -hmm. Pagan News, which lasted for about three or four years in various incarnations. Oh, and uh, another thing that was going on is we had the Satanic Panic. Mm, right, yeah. You know, which you'd already had in America, but it kind of like found its way over here. And you've, you've got tabloids to give it even more juice over here. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, it, was, it was a very interesting time um, to be a fairly out magical practitioner. Yeah. Um, so I did a lot of running around the country, going to various pagan gatherings. Um, I just had a hell of a time, really. And things basically bobbled on from there, you know. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I, I, I find interesting with culture is I, I sometimes call it like the blues effect. Like... Blues changed the way that music was created, but because we now live in an era where blues is sort of the foundation and bedrock, mm -hmm. no one no one really remembers what it was like when you know the waltz was the cutting edge and there was not yeah. blues scales embedded in all popular music. And I'm curious about seeing chaos magic kind of come in because I think even though different you know practicing magicians have in some sense rejected chaos magic in various ways at this point, mm -hmm. I don't know any practicing magician with a singular practice even the most serious most um mm. traditional magicians i know are still part of several different initiated orders and wildly different traditions and then also have a you know an interest in grimoire magic and are still kind of magpies borrowing from everything yeah so i'm curious how you saw the introduction of chaos magic kind of um upset the apple cart as it came in well it's kind of interesting because in in those days i really didn't have a sense of you know, different magical genres. Mm -hmm. it, it was all the same thing. So yeah. it was like a continuing. I mean, um, the first esoteric group I was part of was the Theosophical Society. Yeah. Um, which I joined because I thought, wow, if, you know, they're, they're writing this stuff in the late 19th century, what will they be doing now? And yeah. of course, it turned out that they were... <laughs> they were reading the stuff they wrote they in the 19th century. <laughs> arguing about things that happened 100 years ago, you yeah. know. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I saw the whole thing as, as one continuum. And uh, oddly enough, and, you know, people kind of go, well, when I say this now, uh, I was involved in a Wiccan coven after the Theosophical Society, and it was actually my high priestess who mm -hmm. encouraged me to find out more about chaos magic. Yeah. I, it wasn't actually called chaos magic, I have to say. The, the term chaos magic really didn't come in for about 10 years after the material started to circulate. Yeah. Um, Were there other names for it at the time? Or was, well, or it, was it sort of, check out these people? It was, most of the material that was released was under the ages of the, of the uh, IOT. Right. The Illuminates of Thanatros. Uh, and they 
occasionally made references to the magic of chaos, and they ha they brought the term chaos into mm -hmm. popular occult discourse. But the actual term chaos magic, I think, didn't really start to get popular until about yeah the mid '80s, something like that. Yeah. Well, the labels always come a little bit after the fact. I yeah, know that, and it was very much a kind of underground thing because mm -hmm. most of the material in the early days was put out by small presses. Yep. Um, Wiser didn't release. I think Libanol and Psychonaut until the late T6 or something like that. And that yeah. material had been circulating since the late 70s. In kind of like zine format? Yeah, it was yeah. all it was all zines. And I, you know, nowadays I say to people, if you want to get a handle on, on the early days of Chaos Project, you're going to have to get yourself a bunch of zines because yeah. that's where it, that was the main form of communicating ideas. Um, now, as for Chaos Magic upsetting the apple cart, I can give you an, an analogy on that, and it's, uh, again, I think this is something I might have mentioned in, in Heinz Varieties, that um, I used to be a fantasy wargamer. Mm -hmm. Now, fantasy wargaming started getting popular in the UK in the late 70s, and that really, the, the introduction of elves and dwarves and dragons into wargames clubs was uh, met with uh, horror by established wargamers, because... They felt that they just about managed to convince the general public that they were not grown men playing with soldiers. They yeah. Just, you know, it was historic, serious historical reenactment. And yeah. then suddenly along came, come all these kids like me <laughs> with boxes full of elves and dragons. And in the, in the wargaming press, there was a lot of horror and, mm -hmm. you know, tutting about this. And I think when people started turning up with these weird ideas... Um, about things like, you know, burning your credit card and mm -hmm. uh, not following, you know, to the letter the, the orthopractic regulations of, of magic as it was perceived, yeah. uh, people reacted in the same way. So there were a number of people from the late 70s onwards who, who reacted with absolute horror to the idea of, of chaos as a philosophical or even a practical concept. Mm -hmm. Um there was one guy, William Gray, who was, who was quite a famous author at the time, who called Chaos Magic nuclear nastiness, <laughs> the spiritual version of AIDS. Oh, I saw that quote in the book, and I was so horrified. I yeah. mean, it's, again, one of these things where, uh, like we, we said even with like the term, like when you... Any generation that comes after something, they get the sort of laminated version where mm. the the labels have been assigned and this is now that and that is now this and everything's sort of cleared up. Yeah. And your modern view, but the idea that someone at the time would be calling something the magical version of AIDS is, is so abhorrent. Yeah, it's completely homophobic. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that a lot of people reacted like that. And, yeah. and a lot of people really didn't like the idea that Invoking fictional deities, you know, right. not 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 like ISIS and and so forth. They're real deities, not but, like no, the real but, historical but, magic that yeah, we have in Wicca. But Cthulhu, yeah. you know, Cthulhu's fiction, yeah. you know. So there was a, there was a lot of that, um, but at the same time, a lot of people I think started to just run with the idea, you know. Mm -hmm. And a lot of magic, I, I think, I'd come to the idea that a lot of ceremonial magic was, you know, before you actually get down to taking your trousers off and doing something wacky in the woods, mm -hmm. you know, you have to uh, take on a lot of ideas, you have to follow certain procedures. Mm -hmm. And as I understood it at that time, the chaos approach was like, let's just throw all that out the window and yeah. experiment, you know. Yeah. 
Try something. Yeah, try something. You know, trying something and okay, it works or it doesn't work is better than you know uh, having to suck up a lot of theory first. Yeah. Well, there's the uh, the the fiction book. What is it? Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, mm. and it, and it has this world where magic does exist or has existed, but mm. has become just calcified with a bunch of proper English magicians who sit around and talk about the old books, and everyone's like, well, actually, do magic. No, 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 of course. We read mm. it, we discuss it, we argue about it. Yeah. And I think it's very easy to end up in that because it's hard to, um, I, don't, I, I think there's a lot of things, but I think it's hard to think about what you want. If yeah. you're going to go do some magic, you have to figure out where do you want to push yourself or what are you trying to manifest? Mm. And I think it's sometimes easier to just treat it like a, a thing to just read mm. books about and and slap well, the identity I, on know, your back. Th- those are important issues as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what really did it for me was that, um, as I said, I was in a Wiccan coven. Yeah. And at one point, I, it, this was when I was living in York, I was studying drama therapy, uh-huh. and I was doing. We were doing some really cool stuff with drama therapy in this course I was on, and I was going back to the coven and saying, oh, "This stuff is great. We yeah. should do some of this," you know. And they were like, "It's not part of our tradition." <laughs> I was like, "What?" Yeah. And I began to think, and this is something that I think has occupied uh, occupied me for quite a while, on and off, is that. A lot of people seem to kind of like ring fence magic off into a separate domain to right. their everyday lives, and they won't entertain anything unless it's in a magical book. Mm-hmm. And what I saw as, as one of the strengths of chaos magic is to think, okay, well, let's actually get ideas from outside the occult yeah. event horizon, if you like, and bring them in. So I brought in stuff. Um, I mean, condensed chaos was very much influenced by uh, the stuff I did with drama therapy. Uh, one of my other books, Prime Chaos, has got a huge section on group dynamics mm-hmm. because as well as studying um, to be a drama therapist, I was also trained to run groups. Right. Groups with psychiatric patients mostly, yeah. but, I mean, the same principles apply. And I mean, I mean, running groups of psychiatric patients is probably good preparation for running magical groups. Oh, totally, yeah. And in fact, when I um, moved to London and hit the workshop scene, I used to do actually do lots of the exercises yeah. Um, that I'd been trained to do with psychiatric patients and just change the, the if you like, the verbal pattern on them so that actually this is a magical exercise. Actually, it's a, an exercise to do with patients that are obsessed with, with keeping themselves clean. You know? yeah. Or this is a drama therapy exercise. It's also useful as a magical exercise. So, as I say, my approach to chaos magic was let's look outside the immediate occult event horizon, if you like, that occult box, and bring in stuff from outside. Well, you mentioned in the book uh, Keith Johnston's Impro, which is one that I read uh, in my early 20s, and it's like got four sections, and the first three are about status levels, and Mm. so, you know, a scene's funnier if the butler is actually high status and the master is low status, and like body language, and those are the things. It's a great book. It's very fascinating. And then suddenly I get to section four, and he's telling stories about doing mask work and having people in actor workshops putting on a mask making weird noises until suddenly the mask starts speaking through them and i'm just like oh my god this is i actually did a short course on masks with keith johnson oh wow (laughs) and and his work on masks was a huge influence on me yeah and we did a lot of mask work um partly when i was in nottingham and and then subsequently in leeds as well and that book is just amazing uh as a 
font of ideas for for mass possession and I, I did quite a few mass possession um, workshops I've been a... using his techniques you know they're extremely powerful yeah. not really magical in that right. sense of they're in a book on magic they're in a book on on improvisational theater but again this is something that became a very strong thing for me let's pull stuff from outside and make it magical because it is magical yeah. you know a lot of my stuff is for um i would say a curious audience rather than a magical audience so people yeah. are interested they hear there's a wizard they're coming in for it and i have to really work to get them comfortable and get them to take one or two steps forward mm. uh, because they're going to come in a little bit like, all right, what is this? They're not someone that's read a bunch yeah. of paganism or magic theory. And yeah. I'm trying to get them to like th- see the world in a different way and take a step forward. And then I would go to a drama workshop or my friend runs these amazing singing workshops mm-hmm. and I go in there and it's all theater exercises and people are, you know, getting down to their underwear and screaming and rolling around on the floor. And I'm like, Oh my God! Yeah. This is this is so much more magical than, like you know what I'm doing. And people are just, oh, is this is this an acting exercise? Sure. You want me to do what now? You want me to speak in tongues for thirty minutes? Let's yeah. do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's, to give you an example. The one exercise I used, I used to do a lot with people is a is a kind of visualization thing where mm-hmm. they imagine themselves in a library yeah. and they go to the bookshelf and they find the book they've written mm. and they pull it down and they start reading it. Yeah. And most people can do about one or two pages before they actually realize what's happening and go right. whoa and stop yeah. themselves but you know it's that kind of um state not so much state of consciousness but that kind of like opening yourself to to surprise that has increasingly come to um, fascinate me if you like. Absolutely, and I'm excited to um, to get to that subject. But I want yeah. I want to go in a few more directions before we. So I'll let the audience wonder about wonder before we get there. Okay. But um, I think that's you know we, you've talked about your journey of viewing magic from a psychology perspective at yeah. first, and that's what really turned me on was reading mm-hmm. about Grant Morrison's take on chaos magic and saying, oh my God, that's the key I've been looking for. Mm-hmm. You're not actually thinking there's a flaming demon that's going to singe the grass, and you know you could well, you are. point it to anybody, but you're, you're mm-hmm. going to, that's going to be a representation of your own psyche, and that's what you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And then it moves yeah. on from that. I think yeah. that was the doorway. Yeah. And so um, I'm curious for you how... Uh, how that doorway opened wider and you started to experience magic okay. that was more okay, magic. Well, let's let's deal with that. Um, yeah. I, mean, I, I, I was working in um, psychiatric hospitals. Mm-hmm. It was part of the course I was doing. And at one point, my, my head of department got me into a room and said, well, I understand you're in magic. Can you, you're into magic. Can you explain it to me? And I yeah. explained it to him using, you know, psychological language and he got it Uh, and I kind of thought okay that's a good framework but I think what got me out of that was I had some experiences that couldn't be at the time I couldn't frame in psychological Mm -hmm. terms Um, and the one that springs to mind is I was I was wakened up one night and something really heavy on the bed it was like somebody dropped a suitcase full of stones Mm -hmm. on the bed it was that classical kind of like um was it on your chest or was it just on the bed? Just on, on my chest. Yeah, know, I felt yeah. weighed down, mm-hmm. you know. And of course, there is a psychological explanation. But, sure, sure. Um, and I lay there thinking, fuck, what's yeah. going on, you know? And I mentally projected a, a banishing pentagram. Yeah. It went, you know. And I, I was really shaken by that. Now, you can explain that, obviously. 
But at the time, it kind of like jolted me yeah. out of that, oh, it's just psychology thing. Um, and I had more experiences like that, which couldn't quite, I couldn't quite get my head around in psychological yeah. terms, you know? And what's fascinating is I had a very similar one in my first, I don't know, six or seven months of mm. like, ah, I've read this interview, I'm interested in magic, I'm devouring Robert Anton Wilson, I'm finding your book, I'm going for this. And I remember I was lying in bed next to my partner and the bed was just the mattress on the floor so the window was slightly mm. above me. And I woke up and I suddenly felt that that weight and that pushing down and it was like something had just gone and just like raced up to the window and it's like the face is in the window right there and the presence I could just feel mm. and I'm trying to reach over and grab my partner to like wake yeah. them up and of course I can't because I'm paralyzed and then I finally am able to and then suddenly I wake in bed she's mumbling what do you want there's nothing at the window and I'm mm. completely disoriented but yeah I think it's when you start to walk down that path mm. there are some of these experiences that um I don't know. Perhaps they're floating around in the astral realm, and they say, "Ah, oh, there's a light over there. Let's go, let's go oh, buzz that, by that." <laughs> that. That's one way of thinking about it. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, I stopped trying to. At some point, I began to see that psychological explanations were adequate, but a lot of occult explanations were inadequate as well. So right. I stopped actually trying to explain stuff. Absolutely. So nowadays, when people say, "Oh, can you explain to me how magic works?" No, I don't have a clue. <laughs> yep. You know, was, was that an astral entity? I don't know. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, I had an experience. I'm not going to try and frame it in a box, whether it's psychology or occult or whatever. You know, when you, when you dissect the frog, it stops hopping. Yeah. yeah. Experience. You know definitions explanations can be really useful to an extent and then you that you get just get trapped in stuff you know? exactly so now i'm curious about because i think you talk about this quite nicely in the book of moving through that world of uh, you know at a certain point you were very i assume mired in chaos magic you were writing books about it that was something that you were, i was mired in a lot of stuff a lot of stuff no. but you know it was it was a thing that you were mm. writing about and expressing and then you talk about towards the end of the 90s, kind mm. of coming out the other side almost of getting more interested in Tantra and realizing that the context and some, I guess some of the bathwater that the chaos magicians have been eager to get rid of mm. uh, might have a little bit of baby in it after all. Well, I'd got interested in Tantra. Let me think. I mean, it's all very kind of non-linear. Yeah. I mean, I, I went to Israel mm. in 1981. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 1981, and um, worked on a kibbutz. Yeah. Came back because of the war in Lebanon, which, mm-hmm. you know, messed things up a bit. Yeah. Uh, and ended up live, living in rural Lincolnshire. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, okay, enough magical awareness. I'm going to go on a kind of retreat. You know, yeah. I'm not going to do anything. I'm meditate, walk, you know, right. that's it. And I started having recurring dreams about the goddess Carly. Mm-hmm. Completely out of nowhere. I mean, I, yeah, I knew there was a goddess called Carly, but I never felt any strong attraction to her. Um, but I kept having this recurring dream of a kind of like, you know, classic Indian cremation ground. Mm-hmm. And uh, that started getting me, that was kind of like what led me towards getting interested in Tantra. That was, in the, yeah, that was about 1982. Yeah. Uh, I'd, been in the Wiccan cover and I'd done some chaos magic by this time, but that became another trajectory for me. Yeah. But it didn't really flower until I came to Leeds, uh, 
which, as I said, Chaos Magic Central, but there was also this, I met this guy there who was a member of this uh, East-West Tantric Order. Mm -hmm. We got a little group together. I think there were three of us. We did the exercises of um, the grade papers of this this group. Um, And I think what I particularly liked was that I think coming out of Wicca, I had a, a strong resonance with the idea of goddesses. Yeah. Um, in a very religious way, I should say. Because yeah. um, my first kind of like bridging between, if you like, orthodox Wicca and chaos magic was uh, magical work with the goddess Eris. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the tantric stuff was bubbling up under and all the while I was, you know, doing the chaos magic stuff, the, the tantra yeah. material was there. But I think what had happened by the 1990s was I I really wanted to concentrate on Tantra. Mm-hmm. And if you like, my, my wake-up moment was I was I was reading um, some material about Tantra in Kerala. And I suddenly thought, I don't know where Kerala is. You know, yeah. you, I can't point it on a map, you know. And I realised I'd been, I'd been seeing... Uh, if you like, tantric material is like an adjunct to the Western material, mm-hmm. you know. It's kind of like, you know, the way you eat curry without a second thought. Yeah. And I started to think, hang on, what are the differences, you know? Um, there had been a lot of writing um, throughout the 70s, particularly with, you know, Western interpretations of, yeah. of tantra. Oh, tantra is just like Kabbalah. Yeah. No, it isn't. No, tantra. You know, it was kind of like seen as an add-on to Western material, but people weren't actually thinking about the differences. Mm-hmm. So I started to think, okay, what's, you know, what are the different ideas underpinning this ritual work? Mm-hmm. Um, and I got, and I, you know, it was an, an intellectual challenge for me because for years I'd actually avoided that theory. Yeah. I was, I'd read stuff and people like Sir John Woodroffe's mm-hmm. very theoretical books on 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 tantric philosophy, and I just uh, can't be bothered with that. I want to do a ritual, yeah. you know. Um, so I actually did a deep dive into the esoteric philosophy underpinning tantra, mm-hmm. and it just opened up whole new worlds for me, you know. Um, and I had to. I did a kind of like crash course in Indian poetic language to yeah. discover what's different about their metaphoric structures to Western ones, and uh, that really helped me deepen my practice. Yeah, you know, because I wasn't just doing exercises and rituals without thinking of, of the deep structures underneath them, but yeah. I was actually starting to understand, you know, what are the f- philosophical underpinnings underlying these practices well you can almost think of it about you know we're all we've all got our circle of our ways of thinking about the world and there's one method where you're just bringing things into your own circle and taking yeah. new things and saying ah but it's like this other stuff that i'm aware of and i'm just going to keep kind of yeah. condensing it down to fit into my circle and then there's another which is i think what you're describing here of really stretching yourself to say okay i can read this and i have my interpretation yeah but that's just level one and that's just bringing it in mm. i need to get down a level and understand that somebody who would have been practicing this this at the time mm. had a very different way of thinking about the world and is going to interpret this in a different way and had a yeah. different context that i'm never going to be able to recreate i don't have a time machine i'm not going to yeah. go back and be raised in a mm. you know I mean, family that existed in Kashmir at that time yeah but, but something you got again in a lot of 70s magical writing is that the idea that east and west can never meet mm-hmm. you know 
this was one of Jung's things. Yeah. You know, oh, you you know, he says at some point in one of his essays, so, you know, you shouldn't try and understand um, Eastern philosophy. It'll, yeah. it'll do your head in, you know. Yeah. He also <laughs> said that Westerners shouldn't do yoga because it would send them mad. Yeah. Uh, and there was a lot of writing about that, and I was kind of like, hang on, you know, no, people yeah. can, you know, you can read good translations of, of these philosophical texts mm -hmm. and they do actually deepen your practice yeah so I'll give you an example um a few years ago um i was reading a, a diana a meditation script for a goddess and it mm -hmm. kept saying this goddess is beautiful mm -hmm. and i started to think okay what are these ideas of beauty they're surely different to western ones yeah. you know what what is the indian idea of beauty say in the 14th century can i go on Mm -hmm. Look at that, and then when I'm reciting that Diana, when I'm visualizing that goddess, yep. knowing what they thought was beautiful. Because mm -hmm. the, the one thing I love about the, the tantric meditational practices is the lovely lyrical language, even right. when it's translated into into uh, English, it's, mm -hmm. it's beautiful, you know. Um, so I want I I had to do an investigation into in classical Indian ideas of beauty yeah. in order to deepen my practice, my, my you know relationship with those deities. Yeah, I think that's I think that's just again it's so beautiful to just get yeah. more information to just be yeah. curious and see where are the other sources, where can you go beyond mm. the occult section in the bookstore and find whether it's drama theory or Indian history something that expands and helps you find new ways to look at the world yeah i mean i i stopped reading books about the occult yeah you know and, and started reading books on on indian history and philosophy yeah, yeah. and and translations of of tantric materials totally dipped my head in yeah. but to come wind that back to chaos magic now this isn't true of all chaos magicians but the the people i was hanging out with had this very reductionist mm -hmm. uh approach to ritual and I remember I was I was corresponding with this group in America, and they wanted to do a, a Kali yeah. puja. Uh, mm -hmm. I'd actually, I think some of them were a Kali puja that me and my girlfriend had done at an international IOT meeting. Yeah, and they were, oh, can you send us, you know, a Kali puja? And I was like, yeah, okay, no yeah. problem. There you go. And a few months later, they sent me back their ritual, and they stripped everything out of it, other yeah. than the bare minimum. And mm -hmm. I was thinking, yeah, you know. This is really tedious. Yeah, you know, um, and I think I think the particular um, culture of cast musicians I was hanging out with did have that tendency of, of kind of like stripping everything out. Yeah, to the bare minimum, and, and kind of like yeah, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And I th I think that was some of the things that kind of like made me bored with cast magic. Yeah, because I began to think well. Yeah, okay, you can do a hundred different types of banishing rituals. You don't have to do the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram. Mm -hmm. You can invoke the, the the Spice Girls or whatever. But surely a more interesting question is why do you need to do a banishing ritual all the time anyway? Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. I mean, it never felt right to me to come out into the woods and do the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram. Yeah. It just... <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, it's an indoor ritual. You know, why do you have to do it outside all the time? So... Um, and I think that was something I started to question with my various, in my various books, you know, yeah. is let, let's look at different ways of doing magic. Let's not get drawn into that very prescriptive routine. Mm -hmm. Let's let's break out of that. You know? Yeah. And a, a lot of the tantric material is is about breaking out of um, those kind of routines. You know. Yeah. Now, 
I think we're going to get to the heart of one of the things that has fascinated me about magic, and it's sort of a central paradox, and I want to say it very respectfully, but I think you talk about in the book sort of the, the chaos magic tend, tends towards results magic of, yeah. you know, I'd like to get a girlfriend or get a new job or whatever, that sort of thing, and then the, a the, going towards mysticism as more yeah. of like a, a spiritual magical practice. Mm. And one of the things I've always found so interesting about the results focus is that Oh, there's a million anecdotes about getting the mm. results that you're after, and yeah. you know, and, and often very funny and amusing ways. But at the same time, not every chaos magician is a world famous, wealthy person. Where obviously, it's not just like you can type in a code and get everything that you ever wanted yeah. delivered to your doorstep. It's, it's that cheat codes of the universe mentality. <laughs> exactly. You know? Yeah. I've seen this loads of times. Like, oh yeah, magic is like the cheat codes for doom, and no, it isn't. You know. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's like to paraphrase. It's like if you're so magical, why aren't you rich? Yeah. And I don't think rich is the goal of magic, but it's it, it it's an interesting thing that I think the results mm. focus kind of gets hung up on. And then you, I I love the way that you talk in Heinz Variety about the dichotomy between work and play, and yeah. how the work based magic kind of sets you up to then experience those higher levels of play. Mm-hmm. Um, and they kind of you know, it's not just hierarchical, but they bounce around each other. And then you mentioned um, when we first sat down that you've now found a, a third pole to orient yourself towards so yeah. i'd love you to talk to us about kind of your journey towards finding that pole and um what you've been working on lately okay well this is um new material it's been released in portuguese first but okay. it won't be in, into the english speaking world till next year um for a, a long while now i've been fascinated with as you said the, the, there are two main trajectories mm-hmm. for, for magical workings as either results mm-hmm. of a let's say, acquisitive nature, yeah. like a girlfriend, a boyfriend, yeah. you know, new job, Porsche. Yeah, yeah sex, yeah, drugs, fine. and money. <laughs> sex, drugs, and money, you know, the ill standards. <laughs> or there's, um, if you like, a, a nod towards transcendence, whether it be a higher self or your holy guardian angel or God or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started thinking about wonder as the third trajectory. And wonder is interesting because as a as an effect or an emotion, depending on how you want to think of it. It's something that's been edged out of, of Western philosophy to a great deal. Oh, yeah. I mean, Descartes said that wonder was the primary emotion, but even he said, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't have too much of it because yeah. it will impair your rational f- faculties. And I started to think about wonder because... I think it's something I came through through my tantric practice because wonder is a big element in mm-hmm. a lot of in some tantric traditions, and it's this idea of of opening yourself up to surprise, mm-hmm. you know, letting go of of the um, your identification with being knowledgeable. Yeah. So I'll one of the the wonder inducing exercises is I'll pick up an everyday object like this cigarette lighter and just yeah. go, what the hell is this? Yeah, and, you know, and examine it as though I'm. Seeing well, it for the first seeing time. Seeing it for the first time and then thinking, yeah. wow, it's, you know, it's it's kind of smooth. And mm-hmm. isn't it amazing that this thing has, has come together out of, you know, well, however long it's, you know, this object has a historical tra- trajectory. And, yeah. it, you, you know, you click it, look, a flame comes out. That's yeah. amazing. And, yeah, this is a bit silly, but it's, it's something I do to kind of like um, find wonder in the everyday. Mm-hmm. So, like, as I've been saying to you, I, you know, I do a daily walk through these this little patch of woodland, and sometimes everything seems to go 
very peaceful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get a, there's a kind of like dissolution between your sense of you as, as an individual and the leaves and the sky, you know, sunlight reflecting on the pond. Mm-hmm. And it almost, I get caught up in a state that's almost too, too big, Yeah, you know. And I, I come out of it. Right. It's that, it's that sense of, and it can be a little, it can be a little thing. Often it's it's sunlight in a pond, or if I'm walking through central London, you mm-hmm. know, raindrops yeah. in a puddle, and it'll just sweep me into this wonderful state of wowness. Yeah. You know? Everything is just amazing. Everything is alive and significant, which is one of a William Burroughs' yeah. descriptions of it. Um, and that can be terrifying. Yeah. But it can be marvellous. And what I'm trying to process at the moment is how do we get that to be our default state of being mm-hmm. as a as an act of magic, if yeah. you like. Not as an act of magical will or any of that yeah. stuff or not as an in, you know an intent. Yeah. But because if we ground ourselves in wonder, we realise that the world is wonderful and that we are wonderful. And I think a lot of... Um, spiritual and magical practice kind of starts with this idea that we're broke yeah and we need fixing you know and you're as does all, as does most self-help it, yeah, yeah yeah you're broke there's something yeah yeah not you're amazing you. you're beautiful you contain the universe now here's the things that you need to work on and i have all the answers for you at the back of the book yeah yeah and i think a lot of magic is a lot of contemporary magical practice is very much dovetailing with that whole kind of like wellness stuff i mm-hmm. mean it's a huge industry so, oh yeah you know but at the same time i think if it goes that way too much then you know we're not talking about magic anymore we're talking right. about wellness or therapy yeah. which i think are slightly different trajectories mm-hmm. so um some of the stuff i'm working on now is just yeah consider wonder as a magical state and if your being is grounded in wonder i know that sounds terribly new age but there you go stay with me yeah. um how does that change us it's yeah. like kind of like making wonder a habit of mind what i'm the, the thought that's coming to my mind right now is I, I when you talked about will for a moment and that's something that you see a lot of and i first encountered this idea of true will and i yeah. remember when i was like 19 i was like oh i've watched a lot of kung fu movies mm. i need to just push myself to the limit so I can stand in horse stance for hours every day holding Mm. buckets of water and my will I can just make whatever I want happen and I realize that one not very good at that I try and do something arduous and after a while I'm like well this sucks I should (laughs) should go put these buckets of water down Um, and also it's just not very fun to think that the whole goal is to be in control all the time Yeah. and I'm wondering if there's something in this idea of wonder that's almost it's like you're turning that idea of individual will inside out and saying what is the will of everything around me? You know, what is the meandering path that I can flow along rather than I'm going to cut through the jungle in exactly the way that I want to go? How can I enjoy that the one bird flew in that direction, which led me to notice the other thing, which had me sit over there and look at the pond for that time Mm. and kind of interact with, I don't know if you'd call it will or what. I don't find will to be that useful concept, you know. Yeah. Um, And perhaps this is something I... Oh, I... I guess I, it kind of roots itself in my chaos magic practice, but I began to think of stuff 
and I, I, you know, I've gone on Twitter and said things like, I don't think Will is important yeah. in, in magic. And people are going, <laughs> what do you mean? Can you explain that? No. And it's just kind of like a feeling, but it, it works for me. Yeah. It's like the whole thing about body energies. I'm very kind yeah. of like, uh, don't know about that. Mm-hmm. Not saying it's wrong, but I, mean, I, I even upset some people the, the, a few months ago by saying I'd, the astral plane is a cultural construction. Yeah. <laughs> went, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> is, the, is definitely the sound of Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm just kind of like, okay, I could be wrong, but, you know, it works for me. Yeah. Um, this is what I was saying earlier about the, the pro- my problems with the prescriptiveness of magic is mm. that, you know, we come to magic, you absorb a lot of stuff. Yeah. This is something else I've been writing about. But, and you almost kind of like, it's kind of like you're, you're eating, a, you're really hungry and yeah. you eat a big pile of chips yep. and you don't notice that some of them burnt. Mm-hmm. You're just stuffing it down. And yeah. that's, I think, what I did with a lot of magical ideas. I mm. just absorbed them. Mm-hmm. And it's taken me years to actually come back and start thinking, hang on, you know. Wait, yeah. Can we question this, you know? Yeah, I love that. Does this explanation actually work for me or does it trap me, you know? Mm-hmm. And a lot of them, I think there's a there's a double edge. I was just at this business conference up in uh, Newcastle, and we had to talk to other people for one moment mm. about I forget something that we're trying to work on. And someone's like, "I'm really struggling with confidence, and I just keep trying to like push myself to be more confident, and it's just mm. not working." And I said, "You know, I think you've hit on something there where." confidence is very binary and the more mm. that you're trying to be confident the more that you're feeling unconfident and then it kind of just pushes you further down mm. i said what if you switched from just don't care about confidence just be curious yeah. instead of walking in a room and saying i need to feel confident i need to make this good impression mm. i wonder what i'm going to do when i walk into this room yeah. i wonder what i'll notice in other people's faces today and yeah. i think that has a great thing because at any moment that you catch yourself not being curious, mm. you can be curious about that. Yeah. <laughs> you can go, I wonder what it was that stopped me from being curious. Mm. I wonder how I can get curious again. I wonder what I haven't noticed because I've gotten lost in my own thought loop. Yeah. Um, so I would love to take this into our, our final chapter on um, coming up with a spell about about wonder or whatever sort of magic you think um, all of the listeners at home can bring into their own lives. Okay, well, there's, there's something really simple. Uh, it's my a, favorite kind. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's based on a tantric exercise, but it, it's, it's kind of like the really slimmed down version. Yeah. You visualize a flame in your heart. Okay. And you feed it your experience. Ooh. So whatever you see. Yeah. Particularly things that, nice things, things mm-hmm. that bring you joy. But whatever you see, whatever you experience, you imagine the flame just going, you know, leaping up and down. It doesn't have to leap up very high. Yeah. You know. Uh, sort of the way that a flame will dance. And, yeah, and yeah. It, 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 the idea is that you feed the, f- the flame your experience. I love that. And you can do that all the time. Yeah. And in fact, you can do it to an extent that you're always doing it, even though you're not actually consciously doing it. Yeah. And, it's, and you know, it's like you throw, but you're, at the same time, you're throwing all your experience on the fl- fire yeah. so that it doesn't stay with you. Yeah. So you're, you're burning up your uh, samskaras, I guess. You know. What I love about that is that it's so simple that everyone can do it now yeah. this is not something that you have to say oh i'm gonna make some time next saturday to go do that no i'm literally can... about to go walk down a garden path into a museum and i'm just gonna feed that museum into yeah. my flame and yeah. all of you that are listening can do the exact same thing even if you're just gonna continue on your commute or go do the dishes yeah you, you can, can feed that experience shopping, you know? exactly uh and I, again this this is um one of my core bugbears, if you like, that people make a distinction between the everyday life we yeah. move through and, and oh, magic and spiritual lives, which are kind of yeah. ring-fest off. Um, 
what I liked about Chaos Magic was again breaking down that distinction and and in the particular approach to Tantra I've been taking, yeah. again that breaks down that distinction that you know, the world is magical yeah. if we just let ourselves experience it as magical, you know? Absolutely. Okay, I think that's that's an end. Thank that's you, a Phil. Wrap. That's a wrap. For more of Phil's magic, including his prolific blogging, check out enfolding.org. And go pick up a copy of Heinz Varieties wherever it is you purchase magical books. As a collection of magical writing, a showcase of one person's evolving ideas, and a first-hand history of 80s and 90s of culture, the book is an absolute blast and I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. I think you will too. And if you like this podcast as a ritual's magic, consider becoming an official participant in the ritual by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual. It's home to a growing community of magical seekers and curious weirdos, and your support lets me do cool things, like interview Phil Hine. I've heard other podcasters say, for the price of a cup of coffee, but I drink tea, and I think buying tea at a coffee shop is an overpriced racket. So I'll say, for the price of half a burrito, which is basically like you already bought a burrito, and you're just giving a wizard half. So, if you'd give a wizard half your burrito, visit patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual, sign up, and help me, help you, help the world become a more magical place. I'm Devin Person. I believe in you. Your magic is real. Music.